All right, let's talk Luke. Luke was written to a, uh, a man named Theophilus, uh, a Roman, likely a government official. Uh, and it was written to him so that he could have a clear picture, a clear picture of Jesus, who he is, what he uh, was like, and he can have an understanding of the implications of Christian faith on life in the world. And during Advent, during the season of Advent, where we take the uh, four Sundays leading up to Christmas Eve, we're looking at the opening chapters, the opening chapters of the letter that will take us to the birth of Christ. And in these opening chapters, Luke is doing a bit of character development, if you will, introducing some new characters into the story, developing them along the way as he draws Theophilus into the story. This week, he introduces Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and introduces Mary with a conversation, a conversation between her and an angel. The topic of their conversation is going to be her virgin birth. This conversation goes like this. The angel speaks three times. Mary responds three times. And then the angel's statements, we learn a bit about who Jesus is, what he came to do. But in Mary's response, in the way that Mary responds, we learn a bit about the nature of faith, what it looks like to believe. In Mary, we see a progression that she goes through. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take our, our text, our passage that we're in this week, um, and we're going we're gonna to take this interaction, we're going to treat it like three conversations. Because in showing the three conversations that they have, we can highlight and see the progression that Mary goes through. Because no matter who you are in this room, whether you are skeptical of Christianity, maybe you have some questions, whether you would say, I've, I've been a Christian for a long time, but I do have a lot of lingering doubts, a lot of doubts that I wrestle with, or uh, you, you've been, uh, you are a Christian, you say, I am a Christian, I have been for years, but you're still trying to, as we all are, work out the implications of your faith. Seeing where Mary starts and where she ends will have something meaningful to say to all of us. So let's go conversation one. Verse 26. In the sixth month, an angel Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Okay, so Luke is setting the stage right here. And he sets the stage by saying there was an angel. His name was Gabriel. He was sent from God to a city, city of Galilee. His name was Nazareth, to a virgin, a virgin who was betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now we need to talk about um, what it means to be betrothed because it's going to be important later. To be betrothed, which is not a word that we have anymore. We don't, we don't say, um, I'm betrothed. Like when I uh, when I got down on a knee in front of the waterfall in uh, the one in Houston, I, I, st I really don't know where that is, but the, the one in the Galleria, that's the one. I, I asked her to uh, marry me and we got engaged. That's our, our language. We don't use betrothal anymore. And the reason we don't use betrothal is because we don't have betrothal. To be betrothed meant you were legally pledged to be married. And the way it worked was this. This was the first stage in the marriage process. It began... It began with the parents of the groom initiating it by paying a, paying a bride price to the woman's family. So 
This was, if we could think of it this way, their version of a social contract. This was their social contract. This was the family of the groom paying a bride price to the bride's uh, family, them entering into a social contract. The second stage, about a year later, was the marriage itself. Why does this matter? Because this social contract, this was Mary's social security. Joseph's family was her safety net. If she were to lose Joseph, if Mary were to lose Joseph over what we're about to read, over what happens, she would have lost a lot more than simply a future potential husband. She would have lost the social standing, the social contract that she had, which would have meant almost certain poverty and being an outcast on the fringes of society. There was much more on the line in her being betrothed and losing that than simply a future relationship with a man. The social contract, the social safety net that she had was on the line right here. This detail will be important to us in a minute, but now the angel speaks. Verse 28, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So in this opening statement, this initial opening statement from the angel, he makes, makes two statements, if you will. The first one was this, greetings, O favored one. And this word greeting, it, it, it was used as a greeting, but the word, uh, the word had a much broader connotation to it. Let me, uh, let me give you an example of where it's used elsewhere in the scriptures to help define what the angel is saying right here. In John 16, 20, this is Jesus, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. That, that word rejoice is the word that the angel used. So he shows up and he says, hey, rejoice, O favored one. He, he's saying, listen, you, you have nothing to weep for in your life. You are a favored one with God. And he goes on to say, the Lord is with you. Now, the Lord is with you is much more than uh, us running into one another in a coffee shop and saying, hey, how are you doing? You doing well today? Good. Good to see you. This was um, much more, let me read you a quote from a commentator. This was much more than a greeting. For this language is often used in the Old Testament with reference to a person chosen by God for a special purpose in salvation history. If we're going to experience this passage together, understand what it's trying to say. We're going to have to put ourselves in Mary's shoes and know what she would have heard when she heard, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She would have heard rejoice, rejoice, nothing to weep for. You have the favor of God and the Lord is with you. In fact, he is going to do something significant and he's going to do it through you. So how does she respond? There's 29, very instructive for us, I think. But she, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, there's a, there's a lot going on in this little phrase by Mary that's very helpful, I think, to a lot of us. First, greatly troubled. It, it's, th this is confused, perplexed. She was greatly confused, greatly perplexed at what was going on right here, and she tries to discern what sort of greeting this is. The word discern, um, it's the Greek word. I'm going I'm to say it for you. Dialogue, isomai. 
What English word do you think we get from dialogue isomai? There we go. It's not complicated. Straightforward. This is the point. She does not simply blindly accept what the angel says, but she has an internal dialogue about it. She thinks. She processes. She asks questions. She says, how can I account for this? What makes sense of this? But there's something else that Mary does in this passage that really gives a window into the state of her um, mind as she is interacting right here. The word, the word greeting. The angel says, greetings, O favored one. And then Mary says, or then it says, Mary tried to discern what sort of greeting this was. But here's what, here's what she did. She changed the word for greeting. So the angel says, rejoice, O favored one. It's the emotive word. She uses the standard cold, more robotic word. Why? What's the point of that? This is Mary saying, I, I'm not sure I believe that this is worth rejoicing over. I'm not sure what you're saying to me is true. In Mary flipping those words, we get a window into her psyche right here. We get a window into Mary saying, I'm not sure what I believe you're saying is true, and if it is, I'm not sure it's worth rejoicing over. What's the point? Why does that matter? Because here's the picture Luke paints in this first conversation of Mary. He paints a picture of someone who is sober, who considers, who thinks, who processes, but doubts. But doubts. Who does not blindly accept, but doubts. Mary, stage one, and her progression is sober but doubting. Does not simply blindly accept. And here's what I want us to see. Here's what I hope you see. In this passage, we learn this, that even religious people like Mary doubt. Even religious people like Mary doubt. It can seem to us that like, people who ask questions, people who doubt are probably skeptical, would identify as non-Christian, but that's, that's not always the case, is it? Not with us. Often it goes like this. Religious people think, I'm not allowed to have doubts, and irreligious think I have to turn my brain off to be a Christian. Neither one of those are true. Neither ones are true, which is why next year we're doing a series titled Everyone Doubts. Everyone Doubts, addressing some of the major questions to Christianity. Because you do not have to turn your brain off to be a Christian. So here's stage one for Mary. Sober consideration and internal dialogue, but doubts. Now, conversation two. Verse 30, and the angel said it to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Do not found, uh, I mean, do not be afraid. The angel shows up, starts speaking, says, do not be afraid. Sure, no reason to be afraid here. But this is not more than just, hey, hey Mary, don't panic. There's a few things going on. One, uh, one fears the expected response in the Old Testament when you're in the presence of God or his messengers. Two, this, this phrase, do not be afraid, showed up at birth announcements. And so in the context, you might expect it here. But there's a, another thing that I think is the most interesting that's happening right here. One commentator put it this way. Do not be afraid often also appears in divine, divine war narratives. The appearance of this formula in other unconventional military settings suggests that it should be understood in its wider covenantal or biblical context the focus of which is the act of God on behalf of his people. See, in the statement, do not be afraid, 
the angel was signaling this, that God is about to act on behalf of his people. God is about to intervene and act on behalf of his people. There's about to be a turning point in the story. What is it? Keep reading, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. He says, hey Mary, you're going to have a son, a son whose name will be Jesus. He will be the Savior, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, the one who will come to fully rescue And the phrase, do not be afraid, do not be afraid because God is going to act on behalf of his people through the child that you, a virgin, are going to conceive. Do not be afraid, God is going to act on behalf of his people. This son of yours, Mary, is also the son of the Most High. The son of the Most High, the Most High, Most High being a title for the God of Israel, the king that is above all other kings, and in calling him son of the most high, he's putting him in the lineage of God, saying he is going to be the king to come, the king that is above all other kings, which is why he uses royal language to explain son of the most high, language like giving to him the throne of his father, David. David was a king in the Old Testament. Through his lineage, the Messiah, the Savior, would come. Language like reigning over the house of Jacob forever. House of Jacob, this is a reference to Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, and Jesus would be the king that is to come for them, and his kingdom will have no end. He will be the king, and his kingdom will be an eternal one. So there's a question. What do we learn about Jesus here? What do we learn about Jesus in this part of the passage, in this part of the conversation from the angel to Mary? Or if I could ask it this way, what would Theophilus, Roman citizen, have learned about Jesus and about the message of Christianity, what would he have learned that would have challenged the way that he saw the world or had been taught to see the world his entire life? Here's what he would have learned. The most high became the most low. The most high became the most low. I'm stealing that phrase from Tim Keller. The son of the most high became the son of an obscure woman in an obscure town. And the coming of Jesus, royalty became a nobody. Came to a town that that he had to give detailed language to explain to Theophilus where it was. In the coming of Jesus, the Son of the Most High became the son of an obscure woman in an obscure town. This would have inverted all that Theophilus understood the world to be. Roman citizens or ancient Roman culture, it was, in a lot of ways, similar to a modern culture, very cutthroat, very um, climb a social ladder. The way up is up, the way down is down. CEOs do not today, did not then, clean toilets. He would have seen the, the way the world works is you want to go to the top, you work your way up there. And in the coming of the Messiah, the king is becoming a baby. The most high is becoming the most low. This is the message of Advent. And now Mary responds. And Mary said it to the angel, verse 34. She said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? 
Mary responds here with an honest question. I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. How is this possible? Now, if you're in here and you're thinking, listen, one of the reasons, one of the things that causes doubt in me, one of the one of the things that causes doubt to swell up is things like this. I just have a hard time accepting um, the virgin birth. Like, I don't struggle with some of the ethical teachings of Jesus, but but things like virgin birth, these are these are real challenges for me. Now, you you probably are also assuming uh, that believing in a virgin birth would have been easy for Mary, right? She was ancient, religious, pre-enlightenment, if you will. It would have been easier for her to believe in a virgin birth than you. Uh, and I, I want to read this quote to you from Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York, uh, really influential on me and a lot of us. But th- this is what he said about this text. He said, you might have a worldview that makes it difficult to believe in a virgin birth, but she was a Jewish woman. These, those, were the last people on the face of the earth to have believed God, to have believed God through his Holy Spirit could come in and impregnate her. She had a worldview more antithetical to the virgin birth than you do. Here's the point. If you struggle with doubt, if things like virgin birth make it hard to believe, what should you do about it? Well, since you are like Mary, here's a good place to start. Do what Mary did. Ask honest questions. Follow her example and be willing to ask honest questions. Don't be afraid to steal again from Keller. Learn how to doubt your doubts. And the best way to doubt your doubts is to ask honest questions to God and ask honest questions to yourself. But ask honest questions. The angel came to her and said, The Son of the Most High is going to become your son. And she responded with an honest question. How is this possible? I'm a virgin. And now, now the angel speaks again, and we're going to get to uh, the final stage in Mary's progression with a third conversation. Verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Hold on to that phrase, come upon you. We'll come back to that in a little bit. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So here's the angel's answer. Here's how this is going to happen. This is her question, how, angel? And here's the answer. The answer is the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And the, the, um, the Most High will overshadow you. The presence of God will come upon you. And he will be the Son of God. In this phrase, the angel is saying, hey, Mary, the baby in your womb is going to be God. The baby in your womb is going to be God. And the angel, um, probably knowing uh, that, that Mary is wrestling with this, that this will, will be hard for her to believe, that, that God does this, that God could do something like this, that, that God would do this for her, that, um, that her aversion could still be possible, um, he gives two um, evidences, two things that she can look at and go, uh, okay, I, I can see it's possible. Here they are, verse 36 and 37. And behold, this is the angel to her, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. So she's six months into being pregnant. And then verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Okay, so here's the, here's the first one. 
Angel says, hey, listen, I, I know you probably don't think that it's possible. I, I'm, I know you probably don't think that a virgin can become pregnant. I, I get that uh, you, you asked, you, 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 I, I see where you're at, Mary. But, but let me tell you something. Elizabeth didn't think it was possible either, old and barren, but, but go talk to her. Go talk to her. She is six months in right now. But then he did something else, and he put this phrase on here, for nothing will be impossible with God. This is not um, this is this is not the angel coming to her and trying to give her a pep talk. This is not the angel coming and saying, "Hey, listen, Mary, Mary, you need to believe because you know why? Nothing is impossible." High five. It's not what the angel's doing. What's the angel doing here? What the angel does right here would have would have moved Mary to tears. Would have been an arrow to Mary's heart right here, because this is a quote from Genesis 18. Genesis 18, where God is speaking to Abraham and says this, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, the way the women had ceased to be with Sarah. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? This is her saying, Listen, I, <laughs> I cannot have a child. This is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I'm way too old for this. Not going to happen. Verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That phrase, is anything too hard for the Lord, is the exact language, the exact wording that gets translated from the angel is anything for nothing will be impossible with God. Sort of flagged her right back to Genesis 18. The angel saying, hey, listen, Mary, you're not the first one to doubt. You're not the first one to hear something like this and think, not possible. Not possible. Sarah thought it was ridiculous too. But you know what, Sarah? You know what God did with Sarah? You know what God is doing with you? God is going to do what God has always done open up wombs to advance his redemptive purposes. This is what God is doing. Hey, Mary, Mary, I, I know you think it's crazy. You're not the first one. You're not the first one to hear something and go, I don't know about that. And neither are you. Neither are you. Neither are you. This would have been an arrow to Mary's heart, and now she responds, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. See, here's Mary's response. All right, let it be. Let it be. Let it be. She starts with doubt, then moves to an honest question, and now where is she? Trust. Trust. But here's why we talked about being betrothed earlier, and we tried to define that, because in her statement of trust right here, when she says, let it be, she knows Joseph will probably divorce me. 
At this point in the story, she does not know that an angel is going to go to Joseph in the future. She doesn't know that yet. She has no idea. What she does know is that she is going to be an unwed mother. She is going to be socially disgraced. She's going to be an outcast and likely a life of poverty. And so when she says, let it be, this is what she's saying. She's saying, I'm willing to trust no matter the circumstances. I'm willing to trust no matter where it leads. I am willing to trust no matter the life that it leads to. Are you? Are you? Are you willing to trust no matter the life that it leads to? Are you willing to trust no matter the circumstances? Are you willing to trust no matter what is to come? Are you willing to live like Mary? Are you willing to follow her example? Are you willing to trust? If that seems like a cheesy application point from a cheesy preacher, it's not. It's a question Luke wants you to ask. How do I know? Here's how I know. Because there's a twist he puts on the end of the story. There's a twist he puts at the end of verse 38, where he says, And the angel departed from her. And the angel departed from her. This little phrase does not have to be here. It is unnecessary in the story. If you read, if you read through chapter 1 and you take that little phrase out, you would not lose anything from the narrative. It could have just flowed right into the next story. He doesn't have to include this little detail, and the angel departed from her. So what is Luke doing? Here's what he's doing. See the word departed? The word departed is a word play with the word come upon you. Departed is a word play with come upon, where the Spirit came upon. Now, this would have been interesting. It would have been interesting. Luke would have saw this as he's reading it through the first time, and he would have gone, oh, look at that. Look what Luke did. That's, I see that. I see that. Spirit come upon, angel depart. I get the word play. That's cool. But then he'd have kept reading. Not like this. He'd have kept going through the scroll. He'd have made his way to the end of the Gospel of Luke, and then Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and he would have just moved right on to the book of Acts. And in chapter 1 of the book of Acts, he would have read this, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He would have come to Acts 1.8, the only other place where the word come upon you is used in connection with the Spirit of God and would have seen the Spirit of God having come upon you, come upon us, and he would have connected the dots and he would have known this. True power, true power, the means of being witness in the world is not Roman military might. It's not we conquer new lands. It looks like this, trust no matter the circumstances. Trust no matter the circumstances. And so I ask again, do you trust that the baby who came, the most high becoming the most low, to act on your behalf has acted on your behalf in such a way that you are willing to trust no matter the circumstance, no matter where it leads? Are you willing? Because if you want to be, if we want to be Acts 1-8, witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, ends of the earth, here's what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like fitting in. It doesn't look like, it, it, it looks like trusting God no matter the circumstances. It looks like being willing to trust no matter where our life leads. It looks like 
following Mary's example, being willing to be a social outcast. It looks like humility and trust. This is what it looks like. It looks like trusting with our desires for family, career, friendships. You fill in your blank. It looks like trusting no matter the circumstances. And listen, there are real-life circumstances that are hard. That are hard. There are. There are times where it is hard. There are times where I want to just like wrap my fist around life to say, I don't need you, I've got this. Are you willing to trust? Even in those moments, are you willing to trust? Am I? Are we? These are the dots that Luke would have connected. If your answer to are you willing to trust is this, yes, no, sort of. It's okay. It's okay. Follow Mary's example. Let doubt, let doubt lead to honest questions. And let your honest questions lead to trust. Trust no matter the circumstances. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, Thank you for this church specifically. Thank you for the people in this room that we get to learn to trust you together, that we get to learn that no matter the circumstances, we can look around at one another and we can know that you are good and we have evidence of it around us. But thank you for this text. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the way in which um, Luke portrayed Mary here, the human side of Mary. We were able to see that, that doubt can lead to questions and questions can lead to trust. Thank you for an example to follow in that. And I do pray, I do pray and I do ask that as a community, we would continually move toward trust. Together, individually, that we'd move toward trust, trusting you no matter the circumstances. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.